we have new information about a real-life treasure hunt that hooked people all over the world. And if you were still hoping to find this treasure, it's not really good news for you. On June 5th, 2020, while the world was three months into the COVID-19 pandemic, a 32-year-old man no one had ever heard of before walked out of the Rocky Mountains carrying a 50-pound bronze chest from the 13th century. Inside the chest was a hoard of gold coins, sapphires, diamonds, and other precious antiquities worth over $2 million. He's 32-year-old Michigan medical student Jack Stoof. For Stoof, the allure wasn't the value, but the chance, he says, to live out a teenage fantasy of treasure hunting. But now we know Jack Stoof is the finder, and Stoof says he has student loans to pay off, and he will auction off that treasure. Mr. Stoof, along with hundreds of thousands of others, had spent years obsessively searching for the treasure chest, painstakingly poring over cryptic clues left behind by the man who had hidden the fabled chest more than a decade earlier. What should have been the crescendo of a treasure hunt that had captivated the world was instead the catalyst for an even deeper mystery that would unfold in the coming months. And for the legions of broken-hearted searchers who spent years and fortunes convinced that they were tantalizingly close to discovering the chest for themselves, only to realize that not only had their dreams been dashed, but the finder, as he was originally called, was refusing to reveal the location where the chest lay hidden for so long. They missed out on the gold, and now it appeared they would also be denied closure. How could that be? Why would someone do that? It raised serious questions as to the validity of Mr. Stoof's story, the treasure hunt itself, and of course, the man who hid the treasure to begin with. An enigmatic art dealer from Santa Fe named Forrest Fenn, who, just three months after the treasure was found, would pull off the most confounding move of them all. He would die with his secrets. From Cavalry Audio, this is X Marks the Spot, the legend of Forrest Fenn. You're listening to episode one, Where Warm Waters Halt. For more than 5,000 years, gold has been an economic mainstay of human civilization. As a financial tool, the evolution of gold can be better understood anecdotally. In 1849, a miner from the gold fields of Northern California could walk into a haberdashery in San Francisco with an ounce of gold valued at $20 and buy a new suit of clothes, shoes included. Today, one ounce of gold will buy you that same suit of clothes, but $20 won't even get you a necktie. Gold maintains its value. As a savvy investor, buying gold bullion or gold coins has often been the right bet for reasons beyond long-term stability, not the least of which was this. You could hold it in your hand. You could lock it up in a safe. You could hide it in the mountains. Your wealth didn't depend on other people or institutions to keep it safe. And unlike, say, diamonds, 
Gold is worth what it's worth. What that means is, if you have a bar of gold worth $1,000, it will be worth $1,000 anywhere in the world. A diamond is susceptible to appraisal and ultimately what someone is willing to spend. Gold is susceptible to the scale, and only the scale. Further, if you cut that gold bar into 10 equal pieces, each piece will be worth exactly one-tenth of the whole. You might be saying, well, of course it would be. But good luck trying that with a diamond. For thousands of years, human beings have sought this precious metal above all others. We pledge our love with it. We decorate our bodies with it. We have mined it, panned it, traded it, hoarded it, bled and died for it. Many have gone through the trouble of hiding it, burying it, or in some way concealing it to then make some kind of map or set of instructions to be able to recover their treasure at a later date. But this story is about a man who hid his gold, a lot of it, and then left a cryptic set of clues concealed in a poem for someone else to find it. What type of man would do this? It's time we get to know Forrest Fenn. About an hour north of Austin, on Interstate 35, sits the city of Temple, Texas. Founded in 1881 as a railroad town comprised of muddy roads, shacks, and saloons, it was incorporated a year later when the Santa Fe Railroad made Temple a division point, thereby ensuring its future as, if not a major city, a legitimate and growing concern for commerce and travel. For the next 50 years, Temple's economy grew along with the rest of the state. The lumber industry in East Texas was proving to be extremely profitable, as was the cattle industry in the West. The Rio Grande Valley had spent years developing citrus farming, and the rewards for that labor were healthy. Then there was the oil and gas fields scattered across the state, and of course, cotton, the king of all crops. The election of Herbert Hoover in 1928 was a sign of great things to come for the citizens of Texas, or so they thought. For starters, Hoover was the first Republican to ever carry the state in a presidential election. And second, Hoover was a very popular and effective Secretary of Commerce under the previous administration. And it was taken for granted that, under his administration, the fortunes of the entire country were sure to reach heights few dared to imagine. Forrest Fenn was born on August 22, 1930, a year and a half into Herbert Hoover's presidency. And more importantly, 10 months into the Great Depression. Hoover, unable to accept the stark reality of the economic collapse and unwilling to engage the power of the federal government to help, was doomed to a single term. And young Forrest would grow up amidst the hope and promise of FDR and the New Deal. The Fenn family wasn't terribly affected by the Great Depression. Forrest's father was a public school administrator, the elementary school principal, actually and remained gainfully employed throughout the difficult years. His father's position as an intellectual authority, however, would create a different set of problems for Forrest. From a young age, Forrest believed himself to be stupid and was acutely aware of the disappointment this caused in his parents. 
rather than apply himself academically, Forrest used this as inspiration to excel in different ways. A strong work ethic and the ability to, as he put it, out-hustle anyone in any situation. These skills he honed through high school and college would serve him well in years to come. Through marriage and fatherhood, the horrors of war, building an art empire from nothing, a cancer diagnosis thought to be terminal, and choosing what would be his ultimate legacy. But before any of that could come to pass, a 20-year-old Forrest Fenn needed to find his place in the world. A childhood fascination with airplanes led him, in 1950, to enlist in the Air Force with the hopes of earning his wings. His persistent lack of confidence in his own intellect, borne out by barely passing grades in high school and a disastrous attempt at a college education at Texas A&M, Forrest knew the only way he could fly was to hustle his way into pilot training. With America's air superiority established in the final years of World War II and the nation again at war on the Korean Peninsula, young men of fighting age who were willing to fight and possessed the mental and emotional capacity necessary to endure the rigors of becoming a combat pilot were a valuable commodity. It was in this new role that Forrest Fenn found his calling. The year was 1951. Forrest was accepted into pilot training, and he found that he excelled under the structure that a military life affords and became an accomplished pilot. By the time his training had finished, American involvement in the Korean War had come to an end without Forrest ever seeing combat. Then, commensurate with the life of an Air Force pilot, Forrest was assigned to several posts as a flight instructor at various U.S. bases across Europe. It was during this time that he met and married his wife and started a family of his own. By late 1967, Fenn was a major in the United States Air Force, married with two daughters, and only three years from his retirement, where he'd still be a young man of 40. But the Vietnam War was raging in Southeast Asia, and the major was called upon to serve. More X marks the spot after the break. In January of 1968, Forrest was placed in charge of a command post in South Vietnam, where he served for 347 days. During that time, he flew 328 combat missions, including being shot down on two separate occasions. In the first incident, he was able to successfully land his crippled aircraft, having lost all power, a dead stick landing, as they call it, on a shortened runway, proving both his talent as an aviator and his grace under pressure. His second incident was a bit more life-threatening. After sustaining heavy damage from anti-aircraft fire, he was forced to eject over Laos and await rescue the next morning from the so-called Jolly Green helicopter. He had provisions for the night, he had his radio, he knew to call on the guarded frequency. Basically, his training kicked in, as it should have. But Forrest was still Forrest. Longtime friend of Forrest Fenn and best-selling author Douglas Preston reflected on their relationship not long after Forrest's passing in September of 2020. My experience with Forrest 
was he was one of the most interesting storytellers I've ever met in my life. He had amazing stories to tell, stories about the Vietnam War that were extraordinary. He was a fighter pilot in the war, and he had incredible experiences. And when I first heard these stories, I thought, these can't be true. They must be exaggerated. He's too good a storyteller for this to be true. And yet every single story he told me later on proved to be 100% true and not the slightest bit exaggerated. So my experience with Forrest over 30 years was that he is not someone who exaggerates or lies or have a hoax. I'd never experienced with Forrest a sense that he was not a straight shooter. More than 50 years later, Fenn gave an interview in which he recalled the events of that particular incident. And the story he tells allows us all a look into the mind of the man and what makes him tick. Vietnam is a country where it doesn't get cold. It doesn't get hot in the jungle. There's fast running water every place. There's lots of things to eat if you're willing to eat them. And I always wanted to jump out of an airplane. I wanted the thrill of floating down in a parachute. And I, I, had, I had elaborate plans if I ever had that opportunity. I had a little Minox camera. And if I, if I ever jumped out, I told myself that I was going to I wanted a picture of the parachute above me. I wanted a picture of the jungle through my boots below me. And I wanted a picture of the airplane crashing. When I jumped out in Laos, I got all three of those pictures. And I jumped out a thousand feet above the trees. But it had gone through my mind so many times that the bailout procedure is, is, is critical. And if you don't do all of those things, uh, you don't have to do them necessarily in order, but there are five things that are critical. If you don't do them, you may get killed on the ejection. But uh, it was burned in my mind, and I knew how to do that. But when I was on the ground, all by myself, nobody around, all night long, I kept asking myself, do I want to take it to another plateau? Do I want to be picked up tomorrow morning, or do I want to walk out of here? I had it in my radio. I can call rescue people or I can throw my radio away, either one. And I, I thought all night long about what I was going to do. I had a, two pistols. I had a survival kit that had nothing much for me to use in it, but, but uh, there was food for a couple of days. Uh, I don't remember what was in that. A dinghy and some, a lot of stuff, weighed 50 pounds. And uh, it finally came down early in the morning that I said, it's not fair to my wife and my two kids. So I said, I'm going I'm to call him. When considering that interview with Forrest, one is struck by something he mentioned about the jungle in Vietnam. He was quoted as saying, it never got cold in the jungle. It never got hot in the jungle. And there was plenty of running water. That image of gentle waters in a temperate climate would become incredibly important later in Forrest's life and would serve as the clarion call for hundreds of thousands of fellow adventurers to leave the safety and comfort of their mundane lives and embark upon a quest in search of a fabled treasure that for more than a decade would exist only in their dreams. It could be argued that a significant chapter in Forrest Fenn's life ended when he made that call for rescue, surrounded by the warm creeks and streams of the jungle. His tour was almost up, and he would soon be back in the loving embrace of domestic life, 
only a few years removed from his new career, awaiting him in the New Mexico desert. His distinguished, decorated military career would soon lead him to another monumental decision. Accept a promotion to lieutenant colonel, which would guarantee his and his family's security, but would land him behind a desk for the remaining decades of his Air Force life. Or retire and start over. Start a new adventure. The first clue in Forrest's poem that he claimed would lead whoever was able to solve its riddles to a fortune in gold is this. Begin it where warm waters halt. That night in the jungle was a new beginning for Forrest, and the regrets surrounding the dangerous undertaking he denied himself would set a new paradigm that would guide him for the rest of his life. Seek adventure. If the Latin phrase audaces fortuna juvat were to take human form, you'd have Forrest Fenn. The phrase, of course, is fortune favors the bold. And it was more than just a colloquialism to Forrest. It was his true north. Forrest turned down the offer from the Air Force. He couldn't imagine a life of moving through the top brass of the military from behind a desk. He became a civilian and decided that a big life required big risks. What would his next act be? Forrest Fenn never liked art. He never appreciated art simply for the sake of art. And yet for 17 years, he ran one of the most popular and most profitable art galleries in a city known for its art galleries, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Forrest had always seen art, any kind of art, as a commodity. Objects he could buy cheap and sell for a profit. He developed this strategy in his final months with the Air Force after he obtained a few original sculptures from an artist on the base, had copies of them made, and sold them for a profit. He had confidence in his own taste in art. He was, after all, an everyman. If he liked something, chances were a lot of other people would too. But there were other quieter, darker forces at work that spurned his migration to the American Southwest, and these concerned his time in combat. He's quoted as saying that he had a hard tour in Vietnam, that he wanted the world to stop and let him off. There's a good chance that Forrest suffered from PTSD. Maybe it was even diagnosed. But that statement about his hard tour, coupled with his sharing of a vivid nightmare that haunted him for years, about a government representative calling him and informing him about the exact number of people he killed with ordnance deployed from his aircraft, clearly demonstrates that his experiences in Vietnam, especially above Vietnam, had a lasting effect. Years after his experiences in the jungles of Southeast Asia, Forrest would compose his poem, which he claimed gave precise instructions on how to locate his treasure chest. As the series unfolds, we'll be digging into the poem line by line, but here it is in its entirety. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. 
Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of Brown. From there it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down, your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer I already know. I've done it, tired, and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. The catalyst for hiding the treasure and writing the poem to find it was born from a passion nearly as strong as Forrest's desire for adventure, his reluctant acceptance of his own death. Yes, you could say the treasure hunt that would inspire thousands across the globe was simply one eccentric showman's raging against the dying of the light. In June of 1986, People magazine published an article about a thriving art gallery in the desert metropolis of Santa Fe, New Mexico. In a city known for its art galleries, it boasted more than 100 on its main drag alone. This article highlighted what it deemed was the best, or at least the most popular, for reasons that were specific to the readership of People magazine. The gallery was where the celebrities bought their art. It was difficult to understand why at first. The gallery itself was off the main drag. The collection could be, at best, described as eclectic. The owner freely admitted his complete lack of knowledge of the art world and, incredibly, the showroom proudly displayed forgeries for sale. So why was this gallery the toast of Santa Fe? It was all in the presentation. And it was orchestrated by a master charlatan who had no qualms about his way of doing business. And one day I was just walking by the gallery and I decided to go inside. And I was looking around and Forrest came out and spoke with me doing the, the shorter version. That's Linda Durham, former employee of Fenn Galleries in Santa Fe. And so he took me into this small library and there were books piled all over and it was very exciting. And he took me also into the big vault in his gallery and it was just filled with all kinds of treasures and it was beautiful. I, I, I had never been in a gallery like that or anything near that. I wanted to stay there. I wanted to work there. I, that first visit and so the next day, Forrest called me, and he offered me a job. I can tell you right now, I liked him a lot, and I truly respected him, and I learned a lot from him. He made friends easily. He could be a joker, certainly a trickster. He was a special person. He, he was an original. He worked hard. He had lots of charisma. 
the gallery grew and grew as if he was just following a future path that led to him being the oversized, charismatic, adventurous, slight scoundrel that he became. The Fenn Gallery's client list in 1986 reads as a who's who of mid-80s celebrity. Jackie Onassis, Cher, Steve Martin, Steven Spielberg, Sam Shepard and Jessica Lange, Robert Redford. The list goes on. A limousine would be waiting at the airport, and the client would be driven directly to the gallery, the grounds of which included private bungalows, which were beautifully appointed with libraries, sitting rooms, sculpture gardens, a steam room, masseuse, private chef at the guest's disposal, all this with no obligation to buy. But they always did. And everything was for sale. Every piece of furniture, painting, book, you name it, right down to the linens on the bed. Celebrities felt taken care of, appreciated, and understood. And they willingly spent millions of dollars on pieces of art from the most unlikely, unlettered, an unashamed art dealer to ever grace the Santa Fe art scene, a man by the name of Forrest Fenn. We'll be back in a minute. When asked for his secret to success, Forrest Fenn responded, it doesn't matter who you are. It only matters who they think you are. In 1971, the Fenn family arrived in Santa Fe. Nixon was president. Apollo 15 had successfully returned to Earth. Elvis released two new albums. And the French Connection was in movie theaters. Forrest had a small collection of art pieces that would serve as his initial inventory in a sprawling art gallery that he planned on becoming the toast of the town. He just needed to find it. His modest savings prevented him from acquiring any of the prime real estate on the main drag in Santa Fe, where all the top galleries were. However, his cash on hand did allow them to purchase a large piece of land just off the strip that he would transform into Fenn Galleries and build his fortune. Owning a thriving gallery located in a less than desirable location was just one of the many affronts to the status quo that Forrest Fenn would commit during his time in Santa Fe and quite possibly the least insulting to the ruling class of the gallery owners. No one really knew what to make of this outsider. Staking a claim in a world where he knew no one, no one knew him, and he made clear very quickly that he had no time or concern with honoring the conventions of those who came before him. He openly courted celebrities, collected Native American artifacts that were considered in poor taste to collect given the richness of the culture in that area. He had no motif to his gallery, no style that set him apart, no particular expertise in any genre or any artist. He would sell whatever would make him a profit, period, including what was to be considered his single greatest transgression, a shameless slap in the face to the professional community of gallery owners the world over, the most unspeakable of all acts in the transactional world of buying and selling art, as I mentioned earlier, Fenn Galleries displayed and sold forgeries. 
he didn't even try to hide it. In fact, he marketed it. Elmer Dehori was a Hungarian artist, and perhaps the greatest forger of all time. He had the uncanny ability to mimic the styles of Matisse, Renoir, Monet, and many other of history's greatest artists. He sold over $50 million worth of fake art to sophisticated buyers, galleries, and museums around the globe for almost 20 years. He was eventually discovered and his paintings denounced as worthless fakes. But man, what a great story. A story that would fail to be appreciated by any serious art collector or gallery owner. But a man like Forrest Fenn wasn't shackled by any of those perceptions or expectations. Art was a commodity. When the opportunity came to purchase a large cache of Dahori fakes at a significantly reduced price, Forrest jumped in and bought them all. Then he had them all shipped to his gallery in Santa Fe, and he displayed them as the famous fakes of the great Elmer Dahori. The only thing missing was the signatures of the masters. See, Dahori was smart in leaving the signatures off. Because under international law, a painting only becomes a forgery if the forger signs the name of the artist he's copied. The conventional art world was aghast that Fenn would do such a thing. But all they could do was watch as, one by one, the forgeries flew off his walls for an unheard-of profit. And if anyone ever complained about a respectable gallery displaying fakes, Fenn would ask them, that if the only thing preventing them from enjoying a canvas was the name on the bottom, then who was the real fake? Here's more from Linda Durham. I had, at one time, an Egyptian sarcophagus with a small mummified crocodile inside. It had been given to me by a customer at the Playboy Club. I took it to the Metropolitan Museum, and a curator said the mummified crocodile is authentic, but the sarcophagus itself is a fake, but it's about 150 years old. So I had this, moved to New Mexico, and I sold it. This was all before I worked for Bart. So time passes, but now I work for him. And I'm wandering in the back of the gallery. And here is my baby crocodile and my fake sarcophagus in a case at the very back of one of the rooms in the gallery. And next to it, it said, deaccessioned by the British Museum. So I thought, well, this is wondrous because that's wrong. And... I may have rushed right into Forrest's office to say, Forrest, that mummified crocodile used to belong to me. I thought he would say, wow, that's fascinating, or that's really great, or oh, we must have made a mistake. But no, he was not pleased. And to my knowledge, the little sign deaccessioned by the British Museum was not removed. And so it went. Forrest Fenn thumbing his nose at the accepted conventions of the art world and seeing his fortunes rise with every new idea 
every outlandish marketing scheme, every risk he took seemed to pay off. Soon, Fenn Galleries was taking in over $6 million a year, and Forrest was, indeed, the toast of Santa Fe. As his fortunes grew, so did Forrest's eccentricities. And he soon had amassed an impressive personal collection of antiquities worth many millions of dollars. And, being the smart businessman that he was, one could assume that given the events of Black Monday in October of 1987, which saw the second largest single-day sell-off in the history of the Dow Jones, Forrest had likely also parked a lot of his money in other commodities, like gold. Good evening. Today is Black Monday, the day the Dow dropped more than 500 points. The day the Dow dropped more than 22%, almost double the rate of the Black Monday that signaled the beginning of the crash of 1929. But this crash of 1987 is not just an American experience. Around the world, stock markets fell faster than a skydiver without a parachute. The panic starting in Tokyo this morning while the West slept. One cause of the sell-off was reaction to last week's 236... We would later find out that he had indeed large amounts of the precious metal on hand. There's something about gold that just causes shivers to go up and down your spine. You can see why human beings have been so enamored of gold for over the thousands of years. But then... Forrest would receive news that would change his life forever. And then he told me, he said, you know, I've been diagnosed with cancer. It's a really bad kind. My chances of making it are not good. He said, my father was also diagnosed with cancer. And rather than putting his family through the agony of, and himself, through the agony of, of a long lingering end, he killed himself. A wise man once said that the real problems in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind. The kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. For a man of adventure, a man of war who had considered walking out of a jungle rather than hitching a ride on a helicopter just for the hell of it, it must have come as a complete shock to be betrayed by his body in such a profound way. Advanced kidney cancer with a terminal diagnosis. He was sure to be dead within a year, probably closer to six months. So, he did what any of us would do. And he said, so this is my idea. I'm going to take this chest and myself out to a place that I've identified that only I know of, and I'm gonna end my life there, and I'm gonna leave behind a poem with clues in it indicating where my final resting place is and a challenge anyone who finds it can rob my grave and keep the money. I was shocked by this and I thought he was probably kidding, but he wasn't kidding. And at a certain point, he opened up a drawer in his vault and he took out a massive bottle of pills and he said, take a look at these. And I looked at them and he said, these are what, are, what I'm gonna do it with. I've been collecting them for a long time now. <laughs> and I thought, well, this guy really is serious. He's not kidding. And he wanted all this to be memorialized, poem and all, in a biography to be penned by one of the top mystery writers of the day. He offered the job to several accomplished novelists, 
but all turned him down. They found the assignment to be just too macabre in the final analysis. But, determined as ever, Fenn persisted and was prepared to go it alone until the most unexpected event came to pass. His cancer went into remission, and he kept thinking it might come back. So he kept this thing going, this chest going, for when it came back, because he was not going to die of cancer. That was one thing he did not want to do. He didn't want to put himself or his family through that. He was alive, healthy, and rich enough to do whatever he wanted with the years he had left. So Forrest Fenn decided, yet again, to start a new chapter in his life. Begin it where warm waters halt. He sold Fenn galleries, turned his back on the occupation that had made him rich beyond his most secret desires, and settled into a life of academia. In an attempt to bring order to the chaos of his life, Forrest took the ensuing years and wrote a dozen books on art, returned often into the Rocky Mountains where he had spent so much time in his youth, he reignited the passion for his marriage of over 40 years, and he found the space to silence the lingering demons of war through gardening. He was healthy, happy, rich, and living a life that almost any of us would die for. But for a man like Forrest Fenn, the restlessness that had for so long been his constant companion would surely return. Every day for the next 20 years, Forrest would see the bronze chest. Still heavy with the treasure from when he thought the chest would be the final chapter of his legacy, sitting not far from his desk in his home office. It sat there, a quiet call to adventure, never letting him forget who he was, what made him tick, what was in his soul. So he took the stuff out of the chest. He said, let me show you what's in here. So he started taking things out. And I saw this chest for many times over a period of about 20 years. Stuff changed. He used to take things out. He used to put other things in. At one point, he had a some kind of bearer bond or certificate that if you took it to a bank, you'd get $100,000. You know, it didn't matter who you were. It was like a, it was like cash. Then he took that out because he said, well, maybe the bank won't exist by the time people find the treasure. And at another point, he had a, some $1,000 bills in there, like a brick of them. And I thought it was like funny money, but he said, no, no, these are real $1,000 bills. This went on for many years. The first stirrings of his new plan came during the housing crisis of 2008 and the havoc it wreaked across the United States. These markets. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. We're red everywhere, essentially, down by 4 5%. We're down over 16%. Dow, at the same time, has fallen about 18%. Millions of people lost their jobs, their savings, their homes. This widespread hardship had an effect on Forrest. What he was seeing play out across America reminded him of stories his parents had told him about when he was a child during the Great Depression. And that through all that despair, his parents remembered the people who helped much more than the empty cupboards or feelings of fear and uncertainty. By the spring of 2010, Forrest had made up his mind. 
the housing crisis had decimated the American economy, and the recovery was to be a long, painful process spearheaded by a talented, idealistic young American president that spoke confidently of hope and change. And while America seemed to be starting over, Forrest Fenn's mind was on the mountains and on that treasure chest. You know, many years went by, and finally in 2010, I visited him, it was in August, and he said, I did it. I said, what'd you do? He said, well, I hid the chest. It's out there. He said, I realized, you know, look, I'm, I'm 80 years old. And he said, the cancer's not coming back. And you know what? I just thought, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it while I'm still alive. And then maybe I can enjoy the hunt while it's going on. And sure enough, when, he, when we went into his vault, the chest was gone. Forrest's new lease on life may very well have been the true inspiration he needed to see his bold idea come to fruition after nearly two decades of contemplation. But, it turns out, there were other factors at play that potentially contradict the idea that the origins of the treasure hunt were rooted purely in altruism and a sense of legacy. In 2008, a federal investigation into the illegal trade of Native American artifacts implicated Forrest Fenn and three other prominent Santa Fe dealers. It was an investigation that Helen Hunt Troy, the author of A Century of Dishonor, would have been proud of. All four galleries, including Fenn's, were raided and items were seized. Among the items federal agents were searching for on Fenn's property was a mummified falcon from King Tut's tomb. The falcon allegedly had been stolen from the Cairo Museum by Anwar Sadat to give as a gift before it somehow making its way into Fenn's hands. The investigation spread across the four corner states, spurred dozens of arrests, and was at the time the largest federal investigation into the illegal trade of antiquities in the United States. Two men from Utah were arrested and charged with felonies. The men were expected to turn state's evidence, but ultimately took their own lives before they could take the stand. Fenn and the other gallery owners were never formally charged. First of all, everyone claims to know what Forrest is thinking, but let me clarify or make sure that you understand what happened here. The FBI was investigating this ring of absolute criminal pot hunters, and they decided when they made the announcement, they put Forrest's name in there. Now, if you look at the announcement and you look at everything, you realize that they never actually connected Forrest to these people. It was just a timing thing. They announced all this at the same time, and the uh, press all picked it up at the same time. And of course, the New Mexico press all picked it up because it was Forrest. And it was just a really clever trick on the part of the FBI to create guilt by association when there wasn't any. Within a year, Forrest Fenn's memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, was published in 2010. The book included the now infamous six stanza poem that Forrest claimed would lead some clever adventurer to a fortune in gold. No one but Douglas Preston knew it yet, but the treasure hunt had officially begun. 
I'm telling you like a few stories and there are many and there are much more to tell you the character of the man. You can't just have walked by that place or gone inside at almost any time during his reign and not said, how did somebody do this? How did a guy from Texas come to town with not that much money and create what he created? Other people must have parts of that puzzle. He was smart, he was clever. There was nothing wrong with that. I would not use scoundrel as a pejorative, but as just a descriptive word of someone who entered the game and played the game. It doesn't matter who you are. It only matters who they think you are. I'm not the only person who has stories like this, am I? On the next episode of X Marks the Spot. The true puzzle isn't the puzzle itself. The true puzzle is learning how the puzzle maker thinks. We'll talk to some of the early seekers of Forrest Fenn's treasure and get their interpretations of the first few clues in the poem. X Marks the Spot, The Legend of Forrest Fenn, is a Cavalry Audio production. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Jason Seagraves. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Our associate producer is Margot Carmichael. Zach McNeese is our sound editor, mixer, and post-production supervisor. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe, with additional original music by Bruce Whitkin. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Thanks for listening.